This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 3rd, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Since the late 1940s, the proportion of working-age men who are not working has more than doubled, and the problem has grown steadily. What accounts for it, and what are these men doing with their days? And why does marriage overcome other predictors of employment like education and race? Nicholas Eberstadt is author of Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis. He says the public policy response isn't clear, but the crisis deserves more attention than it's getting. When did demographers and economists begin to discover that this was a serious problem with no clear answers? I would say that in the labor economics literature, articles started being published in the early 1980s uh, saying, gee, there's been a decline in workforce participation for prime age men in America over the last 15 years. That's odd. Well, I guess it'll just a blip. And then in the early 90s, people said, yeah, this is uh, still going down, but it's so anomalous, it's going to turn around. And uh, we kept on hearing in the expert literature that this is odd and not the way that the real world is supposed to work, so it's probably going to turn around. And here we are 50 years later and it's still uh, getting worse. Does the data with respect to labor force participation for these prime age men, does that move or spike with uh, economic cycles? It's an excellent question. The damnedest thing is it's almost a straight line from 1965 to today. Uh, if I were to show you the decline in labor force and workforce participation for men 25 to 54, the so-called prime working ages, you couldn't tell me what were recession periods. You couldn't show me the Great Recession, the crash of 08. You couldn't show me the boom in the 60s. You couldn't show me the boom in the 90s. It's almost a straight line. Now, that's if you're looking at the broad sweep of the data. Exactly. If you're looking at the last 50 years, it's almost a straight line. And knowing when the recessions were or when growth was gives you no additional information. So that doesn't sound like a demand-driven phenom. If you look at work rates, as opposed to labor force participation, then you can see a bit of the business cycle. Uh, what happens when you look at work rates is you have a recession, the work rate drops. Then it kind of struggles and then there's another recession and it drops further. It's a ratchet effect. Uh, the strange thing is the flight from work, the exit from the labor force has been basically monotonic for 50 years. And that isn't supposed to happen when economic factors are driving a phenomenon. All right. So if uh, economic cycles don't seem to be uh, over the long stretch uh, correlated with this uh, trend, what explains it? Well, of course, uh, of course, we know that uh, globalization, the decline in manufacturing, outsourcing, all the rest, we know that has had an effect. We know that has had an effect on demand for 
work in all of the rich societies. It's just how big an effect this is compared to other factors. Uh, so one of the other questions has to do with the willingness or unwillingness of men to work or to work at given uh, wage rates. Um, we see a, that the bottom has dropped out on workforce participation for, uh, for men with less than a high school degree, but not for all men with less than a high school degree. Not for married guys. Married guys with, with, a, uh, with less than a high school degree still have the same participation rates in the workforce as college-educated guys. Uh, so there's something else going on there. Um, if we take a look at social welfare benefits, this uh, I think provides part of the clue. Uh, my book, uh, Men Without Work, shows that almost three-fifths of the seven million guys today who are between 25 and 54 and neither working nor looking for work, uh, almost three-fifths of them report that they're getting at least one uh, disability benefit. Uh, a bunch of them are getting two or more disability benefits. That doesn't provide a princely income by any means, but it does provide an alternative to work. So there's the supply aspect of this. The part that I would say has been way too ignored is what we'd think of as institutional barriers preventing people from going to work. That's where crime and punishment comes in. Um, I show in this book that basically something like one out of eight adult men, uh, not, not behind bars, in our general civilian population, one out of eight adult men has a felony in their background today. It's a kind of an invisible population because the government doesn't regularly collect or publish information on this phenomenon. Uh, I further show that guys who have uh, been to prison are way more likely to be out of the labor force than guys who, quote, only have an arrest. And guys who, quote, only have an arrest are way more likely to be out of it than guys who have never had trouble with the law. And that's for guys of any age, any ethnicity, any educational background. That's just a, you know, a, a determinative factor across uh, society. That, I think, is the missing piece there. We put those three together and then we get an appreciation of how we got to where we are now. If uh, having a felony conviction uh, on your record is something that uh, is, you know, helps us piece together some of the, some of the evidence uh, about this, uh, what do you make of movements to, say, ban the box, as they say, where uh, people are asked uh, typically on employment applications to list whether or not they do have a felony? I can tell you what the, uh, what the correlations are. I can't tell you what the causations are. So is, is the reason that there's been so much, uh, so much worse uh, performance for people who've been to prison, is that because they're being discriminated against? Is that because they've lost skills in prison? Is that because uh, sort of people who get in trouble don't make very attractive job candidates? I can't tell you any of that. Um, and that's a roundabout way of getting to the ban the box question. Uh, I'm, I don't think that I'm uh, the expert who can give a very informed opinion about what the particular policy reforms should be here. What I would observe 
is that uh, thanks to our federal system in the United States, we have a magnificent laboratory where we can try all sorts of different things, including ban the box, including other sorts of criminal justice reforms. And try them out and let's keep the data on them and let's see what works and then we can learn. But right now we're in this horrible position where we can't have evidence-based policies because we don't even collect the evidence. Many states uh, have uh pretty extensive occupational licensing requirements. Uh, many of those states with extensive occupational licensing requirements make it pretty much a non-starter for you to get a license if you have a conviction uh, on your record. Is, is there, do you have any inkling about where that, what that ought to tell us? Oh, I, I mean, I think you've asked and answered your own question. I mean, I, I think uh, those sorts of restrictions uh, just on a philosophical basis are anathema. Um, I, I don't think one has to go very far beyond the first class or two of economics one to guess what sort of consequences they're going to have on employment. You said that marriage trumps race and uh, trumps a number of other things. Uh, what makes marriage such a powerful predictor? Isn't that an interesting question? Um, what we can see in the data that I present in this book, in Men Without Work, is that uh, even though African Americans are much more likely than America as a whole to be out of the labor force if they're prime age men, um, married black guys are decidedly more likely to be in the labor force than unmarried white guys. So we have we've overcome the uh, the ethnic disparity there through the uh, instrument of marital status. Uh, there's a small mountain of social science research over the last several generations, which suggests that there are all sorts of positive associations between marriage and different sorts of. Um, socioeconomic outcomes and even psychological outcomes. Uh, people have wondered if this is where the causation is in this. Is this just an association? I mean, I think I think at this point we can be fairly uh, we can be fairly confident that uh, that m marriage itself. Uh, seems to bring with it a whole bundle of attitudes and motivations that may distinguish people and that marriage itself may also to some degree be transformative. And this isn't to get Ozzy and Harriet on you. I mean, another, um, the real world uh, can't be sugar-coated, but there's a lot of really interesting evidence out there. So uh, <clears throat> marriage, criminality, mm -hmm and the propensity to be seeking work, mm -hmm. which is a, probably a pretty good predictor of finding it. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems that patience might be something that would predict all of these. Stick-to-itiveness, persistence, exactly as you say. Um, we get a hint of this when we look at the distinctions or the differences in workforce participation between uh, immigrants and native-born men. Um, whatever one thinks, it's not that easy to get to America if, you're, uh, if you aren't born here. Um, 
So it's a self-selected group it's a, already. It's already a self-selected group. And no matter what ethnicity, um, foreign-born men are decidedly more likely to be in the workforce than native-born uh, Americans. Here, once again, foreign-born blacks are more likely to be in the workforce than native-born whites. Uh, so immigration, like marriage, is a uh, is a uh, predictor, which shows uh, shows a whole lot of things about people's attitudes and motivations, and not surprisingly, therefore, also about outcomes. You make a, a point of, of saying that the unemployment rate, as it's currently constituted and, and widely reported on a regular basis, isn't capturing things as well as. Uh, labor force participation. You know, each of these rates they have different components. They're sure. made up of a, a bunch of different things, and they're useful in their own ways. But is it time to replace uh, the unemployment rate as sort of the, as as a standard measure? Well, each month's job report comes out with a ton of information. Uh, the participation rates, the uh, inactivity rates, uh, the unemployment rate, all, all, all sorts of other stuff too. Um, it's our misfortune that the American media clings like a shipwreck victim on the tidbit of the unemployment rate because the unemployment rate was a wonderful indicator of labor force distress of you know, during the Depression, if you could get the numbers, uh, because there were really no alternatives for men uh, who are of working age uh, besides having a job or looking for one. Now that we have a third status, neither working nor looking for work, and now that that third status has three times as many people in it for guys in prime working ages as unemployed guys, uh, the unemployment rate is uh, is pretty uh, uninformative. If, if, you go to, um, if you go to Wall Street, if you look at the business news, if you look at the way that things are reported there, people don't pay attention to the unemployment rate. They pay attention to the jobs numbers that are being created or the labor force participation rate. Um, it's, not, it's not the unemployment rate that makes the stock market bounce around. One of these questions uh, you, that I had bouncing around in my head when I was listening to your talk was, what do unemployed men do? Uh, you know, how do how do their days? How are their days made up uh, as compared with, say, what women who are at home or who are, who are, as you noted, not not working? They're definitely working, yeah. uh, but men who are unemployed, what what differentiates their days? Okay. We're talking about the unworking men, the ones who are out of the workforce. Yes. Or, okay, so. Um, one uh, one of the characteristic differences between unworking prime age men and unworking prime age women is what we might call a care chasm. Uh, when you ask guys who are out of the workforce in their prime ages, how come are you out of the workforce? Uh, two, three, four percent, something like that, say that they're home caring for people. When you ask women, it's 10 times that high. It's like 40 percent. It's almost 40 percent. And uh, I mean, basically, the proportion of men who are staying home out of the workforce to care for people is a rounding error. 
Um, it's a huge cultural divide between guys and girls. Um, what this also means is that uh, the whole rest of the profile for men and women look kind of different. Um, when, you, when you parse out the uh, adult students from the unworking male pool, the people who are studying to get back in the, you know, get a job, get back in the labor force, and you just look at the ones who have neither education, I mean, neither employment nor in education or training, um, those guys don't do civil society, at least according to their reports and time use surveys. Um, they do very little in the way of uh, religious activities, volunteering, charitable work, any of that stuff. They do surprisingly little in the way of caring for children or others in the home despite their abundance of time. Um, very little housework. What they mainly your, your book notes that uh, men not in the labor force report about doing the same amount of household care as employed women. Exactly, who are the most time scarce people in the <laughs> in the working age society, uh, and so uh, what they mainly do is uh, report that they're watching, that they're uh, doing TV, movies, uh, whether on televisions, uh, using DVDs, internet, whatever it is. Uh, for about 2,100 hours a year. Um, and as I think I may have mentioned in my talk, this isn't in my book, a recent study by Alan Kruger of Princeton uh, suggests that about half of these um, men not, uh, not in the labor force are taking, almost half are taking pain pills every day. Uh, that makes the tableau look even kind of more grim than uh, just the time use survey stuff. What is the policy response here? It seems like so much of this uh, is cultural, but what is the what is the policy response in your view? Uh, well, of course, we shouldn't ignore the role of civil society. Not everything can be done by government. Not everything uh, should be done by government. I think my friends at Cato would agree with that, uh, especially uh, if we're going to look at the governmental aspect of this. Uh, I'm not. I'm not very uh, deep in uh, you know 12-point programs or whatever in this in this book of mine. I, I talk about this in very uh, thematic ways. I'd say that three areas I'd suggest looking at would be revitalizing business and in particular small business. So there's more job generation, job creation, um, overhauling our deeply dysfunctional disability. Uh, programs and paying attention to the invisible 20 million people uh, in this um, felon archipelago we have in the United States, people who have been convicted uh, and are not behind bars and are kind of consigned to the shadows uh, statistically. Um, none of this is going to happen overnight. Uh, I think what we need uh, almost more than anything else is a national consensus that this is a big problem and we're not going to turn our eyes away from it. It's amazing that this problem should have been as invisible as it has been up until the election. Uh, Jared Bernstein, in, in critiquing your uh, assessment here, says this is a well-known problem and you say it's an invisible crisis. Well, well Jared is correct that uh, 
He and a couple of dozen other labor economists in America are quite well aware of this and maybe a couple of dozen business reporters and maybe I mean, maybe a couple of dozen people in, uh, uh, in the government as well. But if this were really so well known, why would we keep on seeing month after month the uh, headline banner statistic from the jobs report be the unemployment rate? I mean, that just manifestly shows uh, cluelessness about what's going on here. So I think uh, it is known to uh, it is known to a number of people that this is a very serious problem. It was a wonderful thing that the Council on the, of Economic Advisers did a report on this earlier this year. Unfortunately, it's still pretty much Gnostic wisdom, I'm afraid. Nicholas Eberstadt is author of Men Without Work: America's Invisible Crisis. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.